Hey, good afternoon to you. Welcome to Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. It's fast approaching five o'clock here in the great city of Salford, where it's been raining. Blessed, blessed rain for the parched lawns. It's gorgeous, actually. Anyway, hope you're having a good day. I've got two wonderful guests for you this afternoon. Get in touch with me via the usual ways. Use the app or use richieallen.co.uk. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, I did mention on the program yesterday that Paul Craig Roberts, the former U.S. Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, might be on the program this week to talk about events in Ukraine and Russia, the Wagner Group. Progosian and all of that malarkey. So Paul will be on the programme. He's writing about this on paulcraigroberts.org. I do recommend you check that out. Paul, this hour. And in the second hour, a real treat. I cannot wait for this. The the legendary Manchester businessman, Mike Rice, will be on the programme. The proprietor of the Fab Cafe, Starburst magazine, Satan's Hollow, and of course Fab Radio. And this programme is going out, of course, on Fab Radio Uh, Six days a week, five days a week, seven days a week. Mike Rice, what a a man and what a story his is. That's an hour or two, don't miss him. And I'll tell you why we're doing that, because the Fab Cafe, which is truly a legendary venue in Manchester on Portland Street, celebrates its 25th birthday this week. And there are a number of events happening at the weekend to commemorate that. I cannot recommend Fab Radio highly enough. I haven't been paid to say that. Nobody has asked me to say that. It is a wonderful historic venue and I can't wait to go there for a point at the weekend. I'll be there for a point at the weekend. So Mike Rice and the story of Fab Cafe is very interesting. We'll talk to Mike about COVID, the shutdowns, the lockdowns and all of that as well. He's a great guy. We'll do that later on. As I said, if there's something you'd like to contribute to the programme, a comment or whatever, get in touch via the app. Do download the app or use the website richieallen.co.uk. Right, Right, the former Health Secretary Matt Hancock then has criticised the UK's pandemic planning ahead of COVID. That is what he is blaming, right? He's saying that the planning was all too focused on dealing with um, deaths rather than averting or preventing the deaths. He was giving evidence this morning. He said the focus was to plan for the consequences of a disaster, he said. For example, can we buy enough body bags, he said. Okay, where are we going to bury the dead? He said that was the focus rather than trying to prevent deaths. And he said he was profoundly sorry for each death that occurred. But um, he knew that his apology would be hard for some people to take. As he arrived at the inquiry, protesters jumped on him. The COVID bereaved survivors group, I haven't exactly given them their proper title. But one of them was a widow whose husband died. She had a photo, a picture of him. Apparently Hancock had shook this guy's hand before he died. He didn't respond, walked into the building. Here's a little smidgen, just a little taste of what Hancock had to say today. I was assured that the UK planning was among the best and in some instances the best in the world. And 
of course, with hindsight, I wish I'd spent that short period of time uh, as health secretary before the plan pandemic struck, also changing the entire attitude to how we respond to a pandemic. And perhaps, you know, one of the reasons that I feel so strongly about the importance of this inquiry and why I'm so emotionally in committed to making sure that it's a success with full transparency and total brutal honesty in answering your questions to get to the bottom of this is because these because of these uh, th this huge error in the doctrine that the UK and by the way the whole Western world had uh, in how to tackle a uh, a pandemic and that that flawed doctrine underpinned many of the problems that made it extremely difficult to respond and if I may say so I am profoundly sorry for the impact that had I'm profoundly sorry for each death that has occurred Hancock was asked quite often about Operation Cygnus, which was a three-day test or trial run in 2016 to find out how prepared the UK was for a flu epidemic or a pandemic, right? Uh, it concluded at the time that the UK's plan wasn't good enough to cope with the demands of a severe pandemic. Now, Hancock said that work on preparing for pandemics had been paused somewhat because of Brexit and preparations for a no-deal Brexit. That's very interesting. Keeps that one in mind. But he said he wasn't convinced that even if the recommendations had been addressed, the country would have been in a better place to deal with COVID. He said the doctrinal flaw was the biggest by a long way because if we had a flu pandemic, we still would have had the problem of no plan in place for lockdown, no prep for how to do one, no work on what, how best to lock down with the least damage. And this is the narrative. So far in this, what is it, a week and a half old now, two weeks since they began hearing evidence, is that lockdown wasn't the problem. And you're going to hear a lot of this in the coming weeks and months. Lucy Johnson from the Sunday Express was on GB News. She had something very interesting to say about Chris Whitty, England's chief medical officer, and SAGE. Now, you will remember that SAGE was the scientific advisory group for emergencies or on emergencies. And SAGE was the official group of scientists recommending to the government what to do. I suppose most people me included until recently, would have imagined that the recommendation to lock down, to lock healthy people down, came from the scientists. Well, apparently not. Lucy Johnson, The Express on GB News. In fact, one question that needs to be asked today, um, Chris Whitty has said that it wasn't a scientific yeah. decision to lock down. Was Matt Hancock the person who asked SAGE to consider lockdown, we, we, have, and, we need and, to ask and, that. And it's fascinating that, isn't it, Lucy? Because we were told again and again, mm. ministers are following the science. And yet, he's suggesting a lot of these decisions were political. So they were overruling the scientists or scientists were letting the politicians make the decisions. 
Well, in a sense, what is the science? I mean, it is a novel virus, so the science for one person is different. But there is no such thing as the science right. with something that has not been well established. What the country needed to be was to adapt and to be flexible and to, I mean, every, I've been health editor for many years and every year we have winter crises and we have ambulance, pictures of ambulances backed up. Why are we not increasing capacity during those winter months? This was inevitable anyway that it would happen in winter and of course we had a pandemic and we're still not looking at increasing our capacity. Yeah the health editor for the Sunday Express Lucy Johnson there saying that it was the scientists excuse me it was the politicians telling the scientists that lockdown was the way forward and to make the case for lockdown that is interesting. Now Chris Smith is a virologist and he was a strong advocate for lockdowns during the whole period of 2020, 2021. He still is. And he is often dragged out to speak on these matters. He spoke to the same news channel, GB News Today, and he talks about a global approach to dealing with uh, pandemics or epidemics or pandemics, of course, in the future. Chris Smith, the virologist. Very great danger that we will get past this and we'll think, thank goodness that's over. And we'll move on because there are higher priorities, there are higher callings, our resources remain limited and the money and resources will be spent elsewhere because people will think that's good, that's over, we won't have that happen again. And someone else is worrying about it. We must make sure there isn't that mentality of someone else is worrying about it. We've all got to, as a global community, got to worry about it and I think got to worry about it more. A global community, right? Keep that in mind. Um, there are some learning points. Um, being able to get our public health systems to have autonomy so they can act quickly, decisively and in their own way. That autonomy for public health systems operating outside of governmental control, right? That they know best how to do. There was too much top-down control we found during COVID and I think that was echoed by um, other people who've talked in the inquiry so yeah, far. Yeah. Too much top-down control, too much top-down, too much political interference. And of course, this road leads, all of these roads lead to giving the World Health Organization the responsibility for every nation on planet Earth, for every country in the world to cede power, to cede control over future pandemic response to the World Health Organization, where it wouldn't be in the hands of individual sovereign governments. There's no such thing. I know that, right? We know our governments are controlled. But, but just play along for a minute that the World Health Organization would control everything in the future. Uh, David Cameron pointed towards that. So we need more of that. We need to make sure that we are better across all the systems that we can use in the future. We had to try and invent a test and trace and track system from scratch, as Matt Hancock's saying, that cost an enormous amount of money. And we had to discover all the ways not to do it before we found ways that sort of began to work. Yeah, and Chris Smith goes on to say that the smartphone is going to play a big, big part in future pandemics. I think now we know the power of technology and the, the fact that everyone's got a mobile phone in their pocket these days, we do have powerful tools that can yeah. be brought to bear against this. There needs to be planning to use those sorts of technologies better, but there also needs to be better international conversations and preparedness so that when this sort of thing starts to happen on one side of the world, we know that because there are about one and a half million people airborne around the planet aboard aircraft. Yeah. Right At any given moment, one and a half million people above the ground in planes traveling around the world. And if somebody says there's a pandemic 
imminent. There is a virus, a pathogen out there. We need to be able to get those people down, grounded and quarantined ASAP. Right now, with no city more than 24 hours from any other, these things move fast and we don't have time to sit on our hands and watch the numbers climb before we do something about it. We've got to be more decisive in our responses next time. Yeah, and they want to. this is the reason they want to centralise power to the World Health Organization. So the WHO can say, right, every plane in the world must be grounded now instantly at the drop of a hat. And anyone on any of those planes can be quarantined, can be taken away for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, while we um, try to get to grips with uh, preventing the spread of any, of any pathogen. Yeah, the COVID inquiry is going to be a whitewash. That's not news to you. It's not news to me. We knew that. We're just hearing it being played out right now. It's 12 minutes past the hour. Laura's been in touch to say there was almost a Freudian slip there. He went to say plandemic and corrected himself to pandemic. I despise him. He is so fake. She's referring, no doubt, to former health secretary Matt Hancock. Dean says the only way Hancock is transparent is to take everything he says as a lie and then you will be nearer to the truth. Lie, lies and more lies, says Dean. Message me during the programme via the app or via the website richieallen.co.uk And the programme, I won't be mentioning this too often, is streaming on video now. It's on video on Rumble. It's rumble.com forward slash The Richie Allen Show, spelled the Richie Allen show, no no gaps, right? Jenny says, why is nobody asking, how do you diagnose something with a test that isn't a test and is incapable of looking for anything specific? Yes, the whole focus is Jenny was on lies, fear-mongering and propaganda. Everybody has not got a mobile phone, not everybody has one. I haven't and neither do I want one. And Faisal says, not everyone has a mobile phone in their pocket. Patrick has been on to say the politicians still cannot help help lying, can they? A good start would be to admit there was no pandemic, but then that would open too many worms in the can. And Shambhala says, anyone else notice Hancock's Freudian slip? Yeah, Laura noticed it. He initially was going to say plandemic, but corrected himself mid-sentence. Effing charlatan, says Shambhala. Thank you for your comments. Chris says, Richie, we all agree. Hancock should be in prison. Would it really change anything, though? The whole system is corrupt at every level. And Jilly says, profoundly sorry for all the midazolam you ordered in February. Two years worth that was used up by the end of the year. Profoundly sorry, asks Jilly, for the change in healthcare protocol that instructed nurses to use all of that midazolam that you obtained on their behalf. I don't think so, says Jilly. Thank you for your comments. Hi to Monk. Good evening, Monk. Yes. Do you like Dragon's Den, by the way? Anybody? I'm a bit of a fan. I don't know why I'm a fan, because I'm not a capitalist. <laughs> I'm a Bolivarian socialist, or at least I used to be, not anymore. But um, I do like watching a bit of Peter Jones and a bit of Deborah, a bit of Deborah Mead and, and the rest of them. I like that girl, Sarah. You know, the Geordie girl with the fair hair who does the Dragon's Den, where people come in and ask for some funds in return, uh, some funds for a new business or an existing business in return for a percentage of the business, the dragon would get a percentage. But I like Sarah Davies, that's her name, Sarah Davies, yeah. Gary Neville is going to be on it, intermittently. Gary Neville of Manchester United and Sky Sports fame. BBC reporting today that he will pop in and out of next season's show. Gary Neville has got more money than J.D. Rockefeller. 
Apparently, I don't know. Yes, let's talk about something else momentarily. Bobsky says, I heard him say pandemic as well. Well, it's it's absolutely died in the way. It's nailed on then, he said, pandemic. Um, Michelle says, surely the question should be, what pandemic are you talking about? Thank you, Peter, for your comment. He says the next part of the agenda in the charade is to hand over power to the unelected WHO with their preparedness treaty because the lawyers in this inquiry will come to the conclusion, says Peter, that the UK government is incapable of organising anything when the next scam comes around. It's all slotting into place now, says Peter. And Davy says if Handcock was playing Monopoly, he would go straight to jail awaiting his execution. If we could find him guilty of something in a court of law, Davy, I'd be happy for him to go to prison, but I'm no fan me of uh, capital punishment. I'd exile them, given the opportunity, but I wouldn't kill them. You become as bad as that which you fought against if you start killing people. Trust me, I'm an Irishman. We know all about it. See 1916. 17 minutes past the hour. Let's talk about immigration momentarily. According to the Independent newspaper, the UK's gov- the UK government's plan, I'm reading it here, to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda will cost upwards of six figures per person if it ever gets off the ground. You see what they did there? Now, a Home Office economic assessment released last night revealed that the Rwanda plan, which was announced in spring of last year, but is yet to see a single flight take off <laughs> amid legal challenges, will cost... It will cost an estimated £169,000 per migrant. Who's doing the accounting? How does it cost £169,000? Now, I don't agree with this plan, by the way. And I've explained why I don't agree with it before. It's nonsense. Send them back to the country they came from. You know, if it's a safe country. If it isn't a safe country, grant them asylum. Simple as that. Can't, couldn't be any simpler. That's the, that's your BBG's take on it, right. But um, how did they come up with £169,000 per migrant? Who's doing the accounting? How could it possibly cost? Does does Ryanair fly? Does EasyJet fly into Rwanda? Probably not, right? So it's going to be a, a, a bigger plane. But even that being said, even first class, it couldn't cost more than five or £600 for a first class ticket to Rwanda. Now, before you put them on that bloody well plane, obviously you might have to keep them in a hotel for a couple of weeks to make absolutely sure that they don't have the right to claim asylum here. Again, let's say £100 a night times 14, that's £1,400 plus the £600 to get them the one-way ticket to Rwanda. That's what? That's what? £2,000. Ah, Baldy, but you're forgetting. We have a deal with Rwanda, so we've got to pay the government in Rwanda to take them. Yeah, but surely they're not paying them £168,000 to keep um, an asylum seeker whose claim has been turned down. I don't get it. It's crazy. But they're being laughed at, the government, today, because £169,000 to get a migrant on a plane to Rwanda... But apparently it costs around £63,000. Sorry, it costs 109... It costs £106,000 to allow them to stay in the UK. 
I got there in the end, didn't I? So £169,000 to put him on a flight to Rwanda. £106,000 if they stayed here. Yes, this was manna from heaven to the Wokarati on UK commercial radio today. And unsurprisingly, the bearded wonder that is James O'Brien LBC Radio. Just to riddle me that. We've got low birth rate, labour shortages, an ageing population. Right, he says low birth rate labour shortages and an ageing population. He's making the case for basically allowing anybody who wants to come into the country to come in because we have low birth rates. And this is what's wrong, not just with the absolute cretin that is James O'Brien, but the mainstream media. Why do you... You can't just, you can't just, you know, skate over low birth rates. Why do we have low birth rates, James? Why is there a labour shortage? We can give you any number of reasons why there are low birth rates, right? Uh, Wi-Fi, non-ionising radiation, pollution, chemtrailing maybe. There's all manner of reasons. Smartphones in people's pockets, fertility issues, right? All of that. But they'll never look into any of that. Labour shortage. What did they do to people for the last three years? You would ask James O'Brien if he had the courage to speak to you. What did they do to people? They fucked up their minds, didn't they? They paid them to stay at home. They got them to become accustomed to staying at home, working and living from home. They bankrupted businesses. Businesses went out of business because they were forced to close their doors and even the government's furlough money just wasn't good enough. So there's a job shortage to begin with. Don't believe everything you hear about thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs. There are lots of jobs, but there are zero hours, con- zero hours contract jobs. There are many, many of those, but not, not a lot of good jobs. Not an awful lot of good jobs. So you have low fertility, labour shortage, but then they've completely changed the working landscape in the last three years, right? Closed down high streets, emptied out cities. And then he says... 45,550 people who risked their lives to get here last year. Almost all of them would be desperate for an honest job. What are we going to do with them? Are we going to give them a job? No, we're going to spend £169,000 per person to send them to a country they've never heard of and don't want to go to. They've never heard of. O'Brien is so useless. O'Brien is so Brent-esque. He's so David Brent-esque. He doesn't listen to himself. So these are sick migrants, aren't they? You want to employ somebody to work for you who's never heard of Rwanda. That, that's the Conservative government policy now. Oh, and hands up. I mean, it only had one of the biggest earthquakes in history. O'Brien reckons that migrants are sick as pig shit. You know, send them to a country they've probably never heard of. A country that had one of the greatest disasters in history. Only what? When was the Ru- Rwanda earthquake? What was it? 15, 20 years ago. My, my memory is lax there. Has lapsed even. But, um, yeah. Hands up if you like the sound of that. Who, vote, who votes for this? Yeah. This is what Suella Braverman dreams about at night. No, I'm going to spare you. I'm going to spare you. I'm not going to play any more of that. Uh, Paul Craig Roberts is in the house. We're going to talk Ukraine with him and the, 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 the Wagner coup that never was. And Vladimir Putin's statement this morning, which was bizarre. Paul's been writing about it at paulcraigroberts.org. I'm looking forward to chatting with him. He's in the house. We'll be live with him in a moment. Keep the comments coming in. It's uh, Tuesday's Richie Allen Show, the 27th of June, 2023.
It's the BBG, not the BBC. That is Blues Traveller and but anyway at 26 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Richie Allen Show, Tuesday's edition. My guest this hour is a great friend of ours, a brilliant man, an author, an economist and impressively a former US Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. It's great to welcome back our friend Paul Craig Roberts. Welcome back, Paul. How are you? Thanks very much, Richie. Now, my friend, I'm going to play a little clip for us to listen to. It is by, so that we can get some um, kind of context before you take over. I was listening to BBC Radio 4 today and they spoke to an ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, a gentleman called Yevgeny Popov. So he's an MP with United Russia Party, a Vladimir Putin supporter. Have a listen, Paul. It's only about 90 seconds and then you can come in with your take on that. So, so here's this guy, Popov, speaking to the BBC's Nick Robinson. Uh, this took place a little bit earlier on today and I think it's very interesting indeed. If this man is so appalling, if indeed he's a war criminal and a traitor as you described him, I ask you again, why did Vladimir Putin simply uh, invite him to leave the country? That will be evidence to many people that the person who's weak here, the person who's lost here, is not Prigozhin, it's Putin. Uh, you know, uh, if you are waiting for hope, uh, regime change or revolution in Russia, you will wait forever. Uh, Putin has made the decision uh, uh, he has right to make. And uh, his decision is uh, saving, first of all, saving lives of civilians and experienced soldiers in Russia. Uh, it was a hard, tough decision. I understand it, and everybody understands it. But uh, that decision solving hard situation for 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 my country. Are you suggesting oh, that Mr. Prigozhin will one day face what you would see as justice? I don't care. I don't care who won this case, uh, who lost this case. I. I care, as any Russians, about stability in my country. And the state is win. Is, uh, the state won this battle. You know? You say the state, state won like the battle. Russian helicopters were shot out of the sky by licensed Russian mercenaries who've been created with the support of Vladimir Putin. If that is a victory, I'd hate to see a defeat. Uh, you know, they will take responsibility on it. And we will punish them, of course, uh, who did these crimes. But uh, Mr. Prigozhin is a traitor, you should understand. But uh, most of uh, the soldiers who took part in this mutiny uh, were deceived by Prigozhin. But I don't know the reasons. Let's bring Paul in. Paul, that's fascinating. Prigozhin is a traitor. They will be brought to justice. And the Russian president... The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, said this morning pretty much the same thing, that the, the organisers of the revolt would be brought to justice. Now, you've been writing about this very eloquently on paulcraigroberts.org. You believe that Putin has scored a bit of a spectacular own goal here, do you? Uh, no, uh, no, of course not. Putin has been uh, very badly damaged, especially in the West. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, let me say I was not impressed with the interview 
I thought that both the the uh, Russian uh, being interviewed, the friend of uh, Putin or the deputy or whatever, and the person doing the interview were both entirely political. Uh, they weren't asking honest questions or giving honest answers. They were each representing their political side, one defending Putin and the other trying to attack him as somehow having suffered from this. So I dismiss uh, that uh, 90 seconds. It's essentially useless. And what uh, strikes me about this whole thing is how quickly a totally false explanation was set in stone, not only in the West, in the Western media, but also in the Russian media. The accounts in the Russian media and the accounts at CNN or the BBC, they all, they're identical. They're identical. And these are very devastating for Putin in the West because they present him as weakened. Uh, even his own military is turned against him. Uh, and Putin himself contributed to this image with his absurd claim that the nation was on the verge of a civil war with Russians killing Russians, and that this was a dangerous uh, armed uh, rebellion. And this is strict nonsense. And how such extraordinary nonsense can get put in the head of Putin and become, uh, without any investigation, instantly. Why do you think that's the case? As an explanation. It shows that truth has no chance, that nobody in the world has any chance of understanding anything that's going on. You believe, don't you, that the commander Prigozhin and, and the Wagner group and even the Russian army were frustrated that their hands were seemingly being tied by Russia's military leaders and that they were being prevented from bringing the war to an end and winning a decisive victory. Now, that's a very plausible argument you make, and I'm going to go along with that. So why then? Why has Putin, and I asked you this a year ago, why did they not bring a very quick and swift end to this conflict? Well, that's the question I've been asking. No one seems to know. Um, I think it's Putin is just unable to admit he made a strategic blunder. You see, he wanted to avoid being called an invader. So he said, this is not an invasion. It's a limited military operation confined to Donbass. We're there only to evict the Ukrainians from the independent republics, which have since become part of Russia. So all of the fighting is on Russian territory because Donbass is now reincorporated in Russia like Crimea was. So he, I think that's it. He didn't want people to say he's an invader. See, we told you he's putting the Soviet empire back together. He's conquering Ukraine. I think he wanted to avoid that. And he didn't realize the consequences because if you have a long, drawn-out, slow operation, it gives the West ever more time to get involved and to expand it. And it has expanded. The conflict has expanded and expanded. And we're now on the verge of, of possible use of tactical nuclear weapons. So Putin was, was mistaken in not understanding the unintended consequences 
of trying to avoid the image of an invader? I think that's the answer to your question. Uh, let me say that most certainly this was no coup. Uh, Prigozhin himself says it's not a coup. What provoked this was not just the dissatisfaction of the boots on the ground with the fact that they were dying for nothing, that the war was going nowhere. The 16 months of a war that should have ended in one week, and all of these people dying for no reason. Of course, the casualties among the civilians have been multiplied many times by Putin's go-nowhere war. It's not saving lives. It's wasting them. But what the real trouble is, Prigozhin refused the demands of the Russian military brass to uh, accept their command over the Wagner group. He said, nothing doing. You guys aren't competent. I'm not going to let you ruin my good troops. So he has kept Wagner independent. So the generals have been conspiring against him this whole time. The whole 16 months. They've been at critical points in the combat. The Wagner group runs out of ammunition. Well, why did the Russian generals let them run out of ammunition? It's everything to embarrass Prigozhin. Well, what he learned, or what Prigozhin claims to have learned, you know, his, his account of the event has now finally come out. I just posted it. He says, look, uh, I learned uh, on July, that on July the 1st, the Russian generals had decided to disband my unit and put it into their units. He said, this will destroy the only fighting force Russia has. And so this was a protest to call Putin's attention. Well, the first thing, only thing Putin heard was what his generals told him, and they told their side of the story. An uprising, a mutiny, it was a lie. Well, once it's set in stone, what can Putin do about it? He can't go about unsetting it from stone. This is the way the media traps leaders, whether the media intends to or not. When they set a story in stone, how does the leader get out of it? There's you another can't. there's another possibility here. And I don't I don't reckon you'll want to delve too deep into it because it's territory we've covered before. But allow me put it out there. I think it's highly implausible, but I'm gonna put it out there anyway. Um the retired US Army Colonel Douglas McGregor, who comes across as a pretty savvy and shrewd guy, and I know you've got a lot of time for him, Paul. He, he's absolutely convinced that the Prigozhin, the Wagner leader, that he couldn't have been snared by Western intelligence agencies and that he couldn't have turned against his own country because he would have been surrounded by SFB agents and it would be next to impossible for him to defect, not to defect, but to go over to the other side. I have to put this out there, but we can dismiss this if you want, but there are a lot of people who think like this. What if Vladimir Putin is acting against the best interests of his own country? It's not impossible, is it? Well, I don't know exactly what you just asked me, but I'm absolutely confident, would bet my life on it, that you don't there's think so. no connection whatsoever between uh, uh, Prigozhin and Western interest yeah. or intelligence or anything like that. 
uh, it was Pogosin goes back a long time with uh, with Putin. They're close allies. They've been close allies for 20 years or longer. It was Putin who got Prigozhin to create the Wagner Group. Yeah. So the notion that somehow uh, uh, Prigozhin is against Putin or something is is nonsense. And I think that uh, what what has happened is Putin failed to step in to the smoldering dispute between Prigozhin and the Russian military brass. Putin should have called them in and said, look, we're at war. We can't have this uh, infighting, this conspiracy against one another. And it's got to stop now. But he failed to do that. So the, I think the Russian general saw this as Putin's tacit approval of them doing in Prigozhin. And that's what they did. They, the, the Russian military has achieved its purpose. It got rid of Prigozhin and it's incorporating the units of the Wagner Group into different units of the Russian army. So the whole cohesion of the only fighting force Russia's got has now been broken up. Just before I ask you where this is going, I was unclear in my question. Do you think it's absolutely preposterous, the notion that the Russian president himself might be under the control of the military security complex, the military industrial complex, or Western intelligence agencies. Is that just preposterous? Is that impossible, do you think? Of course it's preposterous. Of course it's... (laughs) If that was true, why in the world would would they be trying to destroy him so much? (laughs) It's funny because it's out there. There are, and and it's not stupid people saying this because you said yourself, Paul, and you've written about it. they are stupid people saying it. Let me make an argument for them. Colonel Gregor doesn't say it. No, he doesn't, no. As far as I'm concerned, anybody who says that is too stupid to even be alive. They might be too stupid to even be alive, but you said yourself that it's it's pretty difficult to explain Putin's behavior. I mean, Putin's behavior has been erratic in the last few days or, or, or week. And the decisions he's taken since the outset of the invasion of Ukraine, if you want to call it that, even though I know you would dispute categorizing it as an invasion, um, they they haven't they don't seem to be in the best interests of the Russian Federation. This is the point I'm making. He's screwing well, up, Paul, isn't he? Richie, listen, uh, Putin uh, doesn't want war. You have to remember, he didn't intervene when we overthrew the Ukrainian government. You have to remember that in 2014, when the Donbass declared itself independent and asked for Putin to take them back into Russia, he refused. You have to remember for eight years, he held on to the hope for the Minsk agreement, which would keep Donbass in Ukraine. And all that eight years while he was hoping and hoping we, that is the United States and the UK, were building up a Ukrainian army. When in February of 2022, it became clear that that army was about to crush the Donbass he intervened to prevent it. That That's his only view of this. So it, it's a mistake, as I said earlier in this discussion we're having. It, he overlooked how the West would widen the war and that it would spin out of control, which it's doing. And that 
it would upset. Look, the Russian people are, are upset by the absence of victory. They can't feel like they have sovereignty or that they are, are, are having some sort of prowess when they can't even defeat a third world country like Ukraine. They want the war over. They want to be won. Prigozhin and his Wagner group are highly popular among Russians. Yeah, it seems that way, yeah. Yeah, they're highly popular. And for Putin to denounce them the way he did, it makes no sense because it hurts him with the Russian people. But if Putin is right that they're traitors and tried to overthrow him, why in the world did he give them a pass? This is the reason why some are asking, and we're not going to go, we're not going to continue down this line because I want to ask you, because I know you have no interest in it, but this is why some are wondering who is Putin really working for, particularly, I suppose they're asking that question because the situation becoming quagmired and protracted, it's playing into the hands of the globalists, right? Because energy prices are sky high, food prices, Paul, in this country, in, in I'm in the UK, in Ireland and around Europe are skyrocketing. Inflation is, is off the charts. This suits the oligarchs, doesn't it? I mean, coincidentally or not, it does suit those um, um, we, we, would, we would label as the globalists. But we don't have to pursue that line because you were talking about in your article, which is very, very well written as usual, that what's going to happen now potentially is that the United States and NATO countries are going to replenish Ukraine's army, maybe with troops from Poland, maybe with um, some, some jihad armies from the CIA. So this could go on forever, Paul. Uh, yes, it could. It could go on forever. Uh, but once again, you see uh, Putin wants to abort war and he wants to avoid being seen as a conqueror or an invader or somebody who's putting the Soviet Union back together. Plus, I think he's watching what's happening in the West and thinks that it's going to collapse. And that once it collapses, uh, he'll just do what he wants over there in Ukraine. In fact, I think he thinks the Ukrainians are defeated and I think the reason he doesn't bother to attack is it's easier just to sit there and let them attack him. It's easier to kill them that way. So all of that's probably in his head. I think it all comes back to his original decision. It was a mistake and he doesn't want to admit it. You know, how many politicians want to admit mistakes? Look, look at the huge links they'll go to to avoid correcting a policy that desperately needs to be corrected. Yeah. And so I think that's what Prigozhin was bringing to his attention. Look, this policy of yours isn't working. You've got to do something about it. And how are you going to do something about it if you let the military brass sitting on their butts in Moscow disband your only effective fighting force? So that's what this was about. You see, again, it's Putin's failure. The, the whole events of last Saturday is due to Putin. It's his own failure. And it's Prigozhin trying to wake up his friend. And of course, the generals aren't going to, uh, they got what they wanted. So Prigozhin's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. He tried to overthrow you. Look, I've been in the government in the highest circles. Uh, I know how it works. Whoever gets the ear of the guy is controlling the situation. And so... You know, Shogu, the generals, the Ministry of Defense, the 
the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you know, what, what else does the president know? The, it's, it's just like in government. What does any cabinet secretary know? He only knows what the assistant secretaries tell him. Why? Because all the departments report to assistant secretaries. All the power in the United States government is the hand of assistant secretaries because they're the ones who have the information. So whatever they tell the secretary is all he knows. Well, the same for a president. What does the president know? He knows whatever the cabinet secretaries told him, which is whatever the assistant secretaries told them, or whatever his uh, chief of staff tells him, who actually controls all access, all information. So this could mean that he could be very vulnerable. I mean, he's been in power for what is it now, Paul, 21 years. Might we be seeing the end of Vladimir Putin as well, Russian president? I think he's vulnerable. I, I, don't, I think the people like him, they're behind him. They're probably puzzled about this event. But, um, you know, when Prigozhin got to Rostow, on Saturday, the people were cheering. They're out cheering, waving banners, expressing their enthusiasm and love for him, the appreciation of the troops. It wasn't a military operation. No, but hang Russia. on, hang on, hang on, my great friend. But Vladimir Putin has now labelled him a traitor. Surely that makes Putin a little bit vulnerable if, as you say, and I think you're right, that Prigozhin is seen as a bit of a hero, a bit of a rogue, a bit of a lovable rogue, a bit of an outlaw. Um, it doesn't do any good for Putin to be calling him a traitor, does it? No, it doesn't. It was a mistake because the mistake, look, Richard, understand the mistake is Putin validated the American neoconservative propaganda that Putin is weak and has dangerous opposition within his own government. So this, this, protest by Prigozhin has saved the neoconservatives' bacon. Why? Because it happened precisely at the time that the Ukrainian offensive had completely collapsed. There's essentially no Ukrainian fighting force left. And so the Western leaders and even Biden were thinking this over. You know, where is this going? It's going nowhere. And they're all about to quit it. And all of a sudden we have a mutiny. And the neoconservatives said, see, we told you we can win. He's weak. He's got dangerous internal opposition. He says so himself. That was the strategic error that Putin made. He validated all of the American neoconservative propaganda against him. Very strange for a guy who used to be in the KGB and is a career politician to make such a what you might call an elementary mistake, you know? Well, it doesn't know if it's strange doesn't. or not. I think, uh, I think, Richie, most politicians spend their life making mistakes. Yeah. How many of them do something right? You go, go find a correct decision by any of the last dozen British prime ministers or, or by Merkel or by Macron. Look at the mess Macron's got in France. Yeah. People, the, the notion that these people, look, what probably happened, uh, generals run in and say, Prigozhin's in revolt. Well, this is going to worry Putin. He's going to say, good God, what? He, it's a problem. He wants it to go away. 
He's got his advisors there. We got to get rid of this problem. It's a problem. We just got to go away. There's no time for thinking. Look how easy it was for the Democrats and the CIA to get rid of Trump's national security advisor, General Flynn. This, this guy was the backbone of Trump's ability to do anything. Instantly, they got rid of him and Trump went along with it. Oh, he's, he's compromised. We got to get rid of him. It's a problem. That's the limit of the thought. That's the way the decisions are made. I've seen it over and over. Up close and personal. You did, of course, see it. Let me remind our listeners, do check out paulcraigroberts.org. You're listening to the former US Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Mr. Paul Craig Roberts, economist and author. It's always a pleasure and an honour to have Paul on the programme. So, um, Well, I love speaking with you. We Thank love you having it. Well, you're, you're, you're one of the few. You're old school, you see. You, you, even if you think it's absolute crap you'll at least listen to what somebody else has to say even if you think it's rubbish and I, I always appreciate that can we talk a little bit about Donald Trump then um, they're, they're yeah. saying aren't they by they we, we mean I suppose what some might call the liberal media they're saying that a tape has emerged I think this is nonsense personally I really do I don't think it means anything and it's very I don't think it's very important but I suppose if it if it in any way impedes Trump's attempt to get back to the White House next year, well, then it might be relevant. But they're saying that they now have audio of Trump discussing with with um, one of his team, a woman, kind of more or less admitting that he has in his possession a document that he shouldn't have. Now, Paul, regardless of what anybody thinks about Donald Trump and his, you know, his legitimacy or, or otherwise, and I don't have any take on it really myself personally, if there are rules about documentation... And that's that, that's somebody who knows that Paul is live on the Richie Allen show. We our, our reach I'm is sorry, I got rid of them. No, that's fine. That's fine. Our reach is so far and wide, Paul. Somebody was ringing you to say I'm listening to you on the Richie Allen show, Paul. But come here and I tell you, right? So if if um, there are rules about what you should and shouldn't have before, during your presidency, and after your presidency, is Trump now just basically has he done the dumbest thing in the world? just admitted that he's had documents he shouldn't have and is that going to put him in serious trouble, maybe even serious legal trouble? What do you think about this? Well, it's nonsense. There's no way he can have a document he's not entitled to because the President of the United States, all Presidents of the United States, have the right to declassify documents. They don't have to go through a process. They just say it's declassified. That's all they have to do. It, 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 the reason for this, I'm not sure, but I suspect it's because in the United States, everything gets classified. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen endless classified documents that don't say anything. There's no secrets in them. It wouldn't matter if the whole world knew. So how is the president going to write his memoirs when everything's classified? That's a f- he can't. That's a fair point. So, so to say that, oh, he has something he shouldn't have, well, it can't possibly be a classified document because he has the right to declassify. When he's so president. The, the, yeah. Now, the vice president does not have this right, and the secretary of state does not have this right. So for them, it would be a criminal action. For example, all of the documents that Biden has from his vice president days or reasons to indict Biden. And all of the documents that Hillary had on her personal computer are reasons to indict 
Hillary. But did the Justice Department indict them? No. No, but Donald they said he would indict Trump, Hillary. Who has the right to declassify them? So you can see this is nothing but interference by the Department of Justice in the election to try to block Trump. That's all this is. And There's you, nothing else involved. You might this be very well. Interference. You might in be the on the money. Election by the American government. And I think there's a very good chance you're right. But I'll tell you why I have very little sympathy for Donald J. Trump. Because he swore to his base back in 2015. And, and I believe, Paul, now this is maybe unbecoming of a professional journalist, but I'm going to say it anyway. I believe that Hillary Clinton is evil incarnate. She is the manifestation of evil, right? And everybody in the world with a brain knows that. During his run for the presidency, he promised that he would get a special prosecutor to go after the Clinton crime cartel. And the day after he won the election, in November, he told CBS News when he was the incumbent, when he had won the race, the president-elect, he said, um, they're good people, I don't want to go after them. You see, I, I, how do you explain that to somebody who, you know who travelled around the country for Donald Trump, who canvassed for him, who put up posters for him, who attended rallies. He said he would punish Hillary by appointing a special prosecutor and she walks around free, Paul. And that's not right. Well, uh, you have to remember, Richie, uh, you may not have this completely correct. Uh, there was an effort to investigate uh, Hillary and the FBI cleared her. She was protected by the FBI assigned to investigate it. So she was investigated. You know, Trump can't convict somebody. No. He can, he can say this has to be investigated, but he can't even say that if the attorney general says no. The attorney general decides, not the president. And the attorney general appoints somebody to do an investigation if there is one. And the FBI's investigation of Hillary cleared her. So, you know, this is a message. I mean, Trump, what's he going to do? And I'm sure that a lot of people were saying, look, you got enough trouble. You don't want to worsen it with this. I mean, you just don't know what people will tell him. You got to remember what I said at the beginning in 2015, 2016 on your show. Trump has no experience with Washington. He doesn't know what he's up against. He thinks because he's the president, he has power to do things. His power is small compared to that of the ruling oligarchy. The military security complex, the CIA, the FBI, the energy companies, agribusiness, the pharmaceutical, these people are stronger than the president because their campaign contributions elect the House, the Senate, and generally speaking, the president himself. How is the president going to confront this? He can't. He can't go say, I'm taking all the power away from you and giving it to the people. They're going to say, oh, yeah, well, we'll see. And look what happened to Trump. They got rid of him. He, he's framed up how many times? You know, Russia Gate, two fake impeachments, uh, Documents Gate, Stripper Gate. It's endless, isn't it? 
Yeah, it uh, is. Yeah. It, so Whatever anybody the thinks lesson has been taught. You see, you you said you were going to take our power away. Well, we taught you a lesson, and not only that, we used you to teach all future presidential candidates what will happen to them if they get in our way. Brilliantly said. Meaning that. It's futile ultimately, unless you can somehow it's dismantle. It's it's well said. Can only, I ask you? An armed uprising that killed everybody would bring any change. Pause. Not that I advocate it. No, I know you're not. I know you're not advocating. Saying that's how bad the situation is. Paul's tongue is firmly in his cheek when he says kill everybody. <laughs> I don't think he means kill you, dear listener. The brilliant Paul Craig Roberts live on the Richie Allen Radio Show. Just one final question, Paul, and thanks again for your time today. You're a great sport because I don't give um, I don't give you often I don't give you plenty of time. I just ask you on the day and you never let us down. We love having you on. Paul Craig, I'm not patronising you, you know what I mean this. PaulCraigRoberts.org is a vital website. Brilliant writing by Paul and by guest writers. Please support it. There is only a handful of truly independent writers left in the world today and you're listening to one in Paul Craig Roberts. Just on a, on a kind of a funny and tragic note before we part company today, Paul. Um, Sebastian Gorka is doing quite a bit of UK media recently. For some of our listeners who don't know him, he had some minor position in the Trump administration and he, he often does um, pieces about Trump now for the British media. And he's no fan of Joe Biden. And he's claiming, and others are claiming, that Biden is walking around. I mean, we know that his health is obviously very poor, but they reckon he's had two aneurysms and that he's in a really, really bad way. How can that be tolerated just finally before we part company well i don't know if, if it's true or not that he's had aneurysms uh he's clearly passed his, his time but you know the presidents have become figureheads they're basically figureheads and it was trump's rejection of that role that got him in trouble uh, R ronald reagan was the last president that wasn't a figurehead and it was difficult, and it was difficult for Reagan's appointees to be able to support him. But since Reagan, we've not had a president who's not a figurehead, and except Trump, who thought he would not be, but uh, they told him differently. So the, Biden doesn't make decisions. He reads stuff handed to him if he's able to read it. Uh, he doesn't. He's not in charge. So he's just a front man. So it doesn't matter who the front man is for the ruling elite. It could be anybody. It could be me, you, anybody who will put up with being a front man. Of course, you and I wouldn't. But yeah. I mean, there are plenty of people who would be good. And you like, you know, People would love to be president and everybody think they were powerful when they're nothing but a front man. And that's what the situation is. Increasingly, the politicians of the West are bought and paid for. And in the United States, it's now been made legal with that Supreme Court decision that corporations had the right to purchase the government. They claimed it was a, a, a free speech right for corporations to dump as much money they wanted in behalf of electing any candidate. Well, if you give 
money, the power to choose the rulers, the rulers serve the money that put them in office. And that's the situation in the United States. It's, it's, been, it's been put in stone by our Supreme Court decision. So if corporations can buy the government, you don't have a government of people or democracy or representatives representing the people. They represent the corporations that put them in power. So that's the situation here. It's the same all over Europe and in, in England. And plus, in Europe and England, it's overlaid with Washington purchasing them as well. Yeah. Nobody you, will you say. Know, you have to remember. You have to remember that German editor who wrote the book that said this: that the United States basically buys us. We just bought and paid for, and that's why we are puppets, not sovereign nations. Well, th that's the fact, and but it's no different here. We, people, an election. What does it mean? It means whoever spent the most money and got the most name recognition and threw the most mud at the other one. If you look at an American political campaign, what is it? It's personal accusations against one another. There's never any discussion of any issue. No, no policy discussion. Nobody's going to say anything more uh, profound yeah. today, Paul. Thanks again for that. PaulCraigRoberts.org, the broadcaster, author and economist, Paul Craig Roberts, speaking to us live on Tuesday's programme. Thanks for your time, Paul. We greatly appreciate it. I can't wait till next time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Paul. Paul Craig Roberts live on Tuesday's Richie Allen radio show. Lots of comments on that. I'll read a couple of them, but I've got to move on very, very quickly. So I do to my next guest. The Richie Allen Show is the world's most popular independent news radio show. Listen on demand via your regular podcast provider. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Yeah, lots of comments on that. Thank you for sending them in. Mark says, and I think his tongue might be in his cheek, Donald Trump is the new Jesus sent from God to save us all. He is the Messiah. I don't think he believes that. I don't. <laughs> um, who's Jade has been on with a very 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 long message saying Richie I've been drawn a lot recently to the need to introduce your listeners to Leslie Flint and his recording archives he was the best spirit communicator there has ever been in my opinion thank you Jade I will check out Leslie Flint I wouldn't be surprised if my better half is familiar with Leslie but I'll put it out there to the listeners now Leslie Flint hi to Felix who says Paul is a true gentleman and one of the most reliable and erudite guests always brilliant to listen to says Felix thank you Felix my pleasure Mike says I must have heard a dozen people in the media trying to explain what happened in Russia on Saturday and none of them have made any sense of it to me says Mike Ian has been on to say it's hard to believe there are any mistakes when it comes to geopolitics like Paul Craig Roberts is insinuating thank you for that Richie was on to say I no more believe Putin is running the show than Zelensky is in his mother care fatigues is or any other leader and that would be my point of view Richie um, and Paul knows this I believe that Putin is one way or another. He is working for, whether he realises it or not, he's working for the same powers that the British and American governments are working for. And a lot of people don't want to 
even contemplate that, but it's my opinion. Graham says, World Economic Forum, young global leader. Yes, Putin was and has been involved in this organisation. Thank you. Neil says, Richie, I agree mostly with Paul and what he is saying, but my view is it's theatre to keep the war going. Putin is, was a member of the World Economic Forum, tying him in with the bankrupting, uh, tying him in with the 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 agenda to bankrupt the global economy. It's coming up for six minutes past the hour of six o'clock. I'm taking a tune. When I return, I have got a fascinating guest for you to meet. His name is Mike Royce. And Mike is the proprietor, the man who owns Fab Cafe, the legendary Fab Cafe in Manchester, Starburst magazine and Fab Radio. Can't wait for you to meet him. Getting us there, taking us there is Sam and Dave on Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. That's right. Eight minutes past six this Tuesday. Sam and Dave, soul man on the Richie Allen Radio Show, broadcasting live on Fab Radio 2 at fabradiointernational.com. RichieAllen.co.uk. There is a brand new app for the Richie Allen Show. Get it on Google Play or via the App Store at Apple. My guest this hour is a truly remarkable man, legendary figure in Manchester, so he is. He um, is the owner of the Fab Cafe, which celebrates 25 years this week. And there are events taking place from Thursday at the Fab Cafe in Manchester, in Portland Street in Manchester. I can't recommend the venue highly enough. It's a fantastic place to visit. It really is. Let's welcome to the programme the man behind Starburst magazine, Satan's Hollow, Fab Radio and the Fab Cafe. It's the one and only Mr. Mike Rice. Mike, welcome to the programme. How are you? Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great to be here. It's an honour. You've been on your travels. You've been all over the place. You've been in Eastern Europe. You've been in the States. We might talk about some of that in a few minutes. But I knew a little bit about the background to Fab Cafe through conversations with our mutual friend, the much-loved Paul Ripley. And I want to go back to when you launched the cafe. You launched it back in 1996 and it was only open. You're going to tell this story because it's a remarkable story. It was only open a matter of days or weeks and then catastrophe hit. Tell us what happened, Mike. It never opened, actually. It was finished in 96. It was opposite what is now the uh, football museum. And it was in the corn exchange and the IRA bomb went off. It was not insured because we weren't open. And we lost the entire place. And then we had to try to find a way forward. We're my The people who were on board with me had all given up. And it, we're, they were left. My girl connection is really, really bad. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to disconnect and I'm going to call you another way. And it'll be a lot better. So forgive me. Hang on a second. We'll get Mike back on another line which um, will be, in fact, I can probably do it now without taking a tune just to save us the blooming time, as it were. Just copying and pasting there, pop it in, and we'll get Mike on another line because uh, I had him on WhatsApp there, but the, um, the the sound was dreadful, wasn't it? It's coming up for 11 minutes past six. Yeah, they they were ready to open. They hadn't opened. Mike, are you um, are you back in the room? You are. 
I am, I am. I am indeed. I'm in the best position for signal in the building. No, it's better now. It is beautiful now. You are beautifully clear. Thank God for that, because this is some bloody story. So you're near, yeah. you're in the corn exchange. You were getting ready to yes. open Fab Cafe, decorating it. This is going to be your life for years to come. It's not open yeah. yet. It's not insured. And then the IRA blew up the city. Yes. That's literally what happened. I did not know this. I knew about the bomb. I was traveling home to see if anybody, uh, this was not an era in 96, no one had mobile phones. So I went home to ring people that I thought might have been in Manchester. And then as I was on the phone to people, the, um, I think it was Granada Reports were reporting live on it. And they did a pan shot right across and um, I'm expecting, well, I heard it was uh, Marks and Spencer's. I, I, I knew we were a distance away, but no. Now, I saw live on TV the ruins of it all on fire. Your heart must have broke, Mike. It was difficult because, I mean, I was a barrister at the time and it had taken a while to get qualified, but I'd, I'd spent a bit of time with people who weren't exactly doing it for the reasons I was and were doing it to make money and it was a bit depressing, so this was a nice escape. And I thought, well, I'll build it and I'll see if anybody's interested. And at that point, it, it did seem to be all over. I had all the props because we hadn't moved them in. So I had a lot of Daleks and you know, robots, posters and stuff. And then I kind of thought, well, let's find somewhere else for it. This was the first week of June in 1996. You had all the the props out and not in the the premises. Thank God for that. That's right. No. Is it true, Mike, that you were, because you mentioned being in the car. It was, I remember Mm. reading about, about this back in 2018 because when Fab was 20 years old the Manchester Evening News did a brilliant piece on it they've done another brilliant piece on the cafe this week but they reckon you heard the bang when you were driving to Stockport is that right? Yes I did hear that yeah and I stopped for a second and I got out of the car and I looked and I could see a big plume of smoke coming up from Manchester and that's a, a that's why I just raced home I just didn't know what was going on. I put the news on. I heard reports of it being from, and that was it. I I had no idea that it was close to the yeah. bar. I had no idea it. Uh, I was just bothered about where where all my friends were. I correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I don't expect you to know this, but I I think it was a twenty thousand pound bomb, wasn't it? It was left in a lorry. It effectively it was dis- left yeah. in the lorry, yeah. There is a debate on what set it off, though. And uh, I, I don't know whether I should go into conspiracy talk here or not, but there are uh, people that feel that there was a warning given by the IRA, a coded warning that evacuated the area so there would be no civilian casualties. And the, the bomb went off at exactly the same time as a robot was trying to defuse it. Right, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, but you, you say that people were evacuated, but there were a lot, there were no fatalities, amazingly, but there were a yeah. lot of injuries. There were a lot of people injured. Oh, there were a lot of injuries, yeah, no fatalities, yeah. And for listeners yeah. who don't know about this period in history, 
the discussions were ongoing at the time between Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA, between the DUP, between loyalists, between nationalists, to, to bring about what would eventually be the Good Friday Agreement. And the Manchester yeah. bomb was carried out by dissident Republicans, wasn't it? The so-called real yeah. IRA. That's right. Yes. Devastating for you, Mike. How do you pick yourself up? Because you basically didn't have a pot to wee in, did you, when this happened? No, no. I mean, that had taken everything. So what happened was I went around, I found a place. I approached a brewery with the idea. They said they would give me a write-off loan based on barrelage. I got some mates to come around to help me build it. And between us, we stepped started work on it. I had a Manchester DJ icon from around the corner called John Gannon, who was the main DJ at Rockworld, and he would finish at three in the morning and come and work. So I would do call and then finish at five o'clock, go around there and work through the night up till uh, sunrise and then go home, grab a few hours sleep and then come back. And I had a band of people built it free of charge. And we just used the uh, money from the brewery just to pay for the rest of it. And then we put all the props that had saved. In. You must have been running on fumes, going into court on behalf of yeah. clients and then doing that I in still, the evenings. Yeah. Hey, I still won, though. You, you I still st always won. You never lost, did you? No. That's, uh, that, that's, oh, no. that's absolutely incredible. So how did it end up then in Portland Street. And it's such an iconic, I mean, it really is an iconic venue. It's an amazing venue. And any time you pass it, there's life in it. There's, there are people in there. We were in town for um, the Roger Waters gig recently. And yeah. it was absolutely, you know, baking down um, the sun. With, the heat was absolutely incredible. But you go into Fab Cafe, there's people coming in and out drinking, tourists coming in to see the memorabilia, oh, yeah. which is absolutely amazing. So how did it get to Portland Street? Well, the, the venue used to be Brew Bay because it was a nightclub that I knew from the 80s. It had a two-let sign outside, and I just approached them and went, look, I've got money, I'm a barrister, I've got a backing. I, I'm happy to um, come on board. I'm not a blue-chip company. And they just took me on their face value, and they gave me the lease. And then the brewery were happy to give me a few quid. I pumped all my life savings in. My friends helped me out. And that's literally how it came to be. It was almost like the power of will made it happen. And that place at the time was not what it is now. There was an, an old abandoned car park and derelict buildings all the way around it. So we were just hoping people would come to us. And while you were setting up then in Portland Street, it's still only really a couple of years since the bomb. So you have a kind yeah. of a bird's eye view, Mike, you and your mates and your staff of the new city centre of Manchester kind of growing up around you because the, the bomb, as terrible as it was, as despicable as it was, you know, there are those, even Mancunians now, people who have no interest in Irish politics, there are those who say, it's kind of the best thing that ever happened to the city, really. You know, in well, Go on. It's a two-sided story, that. I, I believe that it has brought loads and loads of investment and it has brought about the scrapping of a stupid idea by the council during the 50s because they wanted to stop a Jewish landlord, uh, Joseph Sunlight, from building the first Chicago-level skyscraper. And they brought in a, a rule that you're not going to build anything over 30 floors or whatever. 
and they scrapped that as well while this was going on. So finally, we are getting a skyline. We are getting skyscrapers. But I do still miss some of the old pre-bomb Manchester. Like the, the Corn Exchange back then was a wonderful collection of eccentric independent yeah. traders. Not Gap, not all these big names that are in it now. They rebranded it the Triangle. They I did, think yeah. there's a lot of old Manchester lost. This is really interesting, Mike. And that's something that should have occurred to me. So independent boutiques all around the area, proper old school mm-hmm. Manchester family, sometimes mom and pop or, you know, yeah. junior and senior businesses, dad and his son. Next thing, it's levelled and then in come the big corporations and the chains. So it yeah. wasn't. Yeah, got priced out. They got priced yeah. out of the market. They couldn't be there. They couldn't afford to do it. Whereas they used to be able to, Uh, with a good idea and a little bit of a small bank loan or some savings, they could set up a business that could be iconic. That's over now. Rick has been in touch with this this massive interest in this, Mike. I'm not just saying this. I wouldn't lie. Paul will tell you. Messages coming in from everywhere. But then again, you're so well known in the city. Mike, by the way, I don't don't like being soft and stuff, but I'll I'll give a massive thanks um, to Mike at the end of this for for embracing the alternative because it isn't bullshit when you're talking to Mike Rice. He's been embracing the alternative for decades now. You know, platforming and giving space, making space for alternative musicians, alternative radio programs, alternative whatever. It's amazing. And some of the stuff that goes on in Fab Cafe is fantastic. I love it, Mike. You know, I was, do you know, I was gutted. I know I mean it. I was gutted I couldn't get down to meet Kendo Nagasaki, Mike. I was got because I was glued to that world of sport in the eighties when I was a kid. Absolutely glued hero. to it. Was he your, was your my hero? hero? I used to read comic books, and and that guy was like a comic book villain come to life yeah. on the screen. And so when uh, I didn't think he'd come, and I just offered him uh, a small fee, and it wasn't massive, um, just to come and have a chat to people who appreciated him, and he came. He agreed to come. I spent time with him. And I got to interview him for the Starburst radio show. And I asked him a lot of questions because this was a rare thing because my dad died when I was young. I was raised by my granddad and he was obsessed with wrestling. And this guy was one of his heroes. And I explained to him how important it was to people's lives during the late 70s, 80s, growing up. And I said, yeah, it's amazing that you really are this guy, though. You are martial arts trained. You are um, incredible. And when you were on mass, my granddad warned me. He said, oh, he's going to look like a middle-aged old guy. Don't get too excited. And then when the mass came off, even my granddad said, no, he looks really weird. <laughs> With his <laughs> pentagram tattooed on his head. And he's black. He's bright red um, eyes, which uh, now it turns out we, we didn't know such things. Existed those uh, contact lenses no. that turn your eyes red. Was, I was terrified uh, of him. I was terrified, Mike, when I was a kid watching him. Absolutely crapped it, it when he was in the room. It looked amazing, didn't it? It looked yeah. amazing. Uh, something else about Fab Cafe. By the way, the website is fabcafe.co.uk. Couldn't be simpler. Yes, fabcafe.co.uk. Yeah. You've got to get down to Fab. And if you're in there and you bump into Mike, you might bump into Mike or Charlie, his beautiful missus, who you won't believe it, he met in. Go on, tell the story. You met Charlie. Well, I met, I met her on my birthday. We'd, uh, you see, the one thing you've got to get across here, and I do think it's important to get this across, when Fab Cafe opened, it was an absolute failure. 
uh, we opened it up and people were walking in. And you've got to bear in mind, it's 1998 in June. And you, there's no Northern Quarter. There's no alternative music, really, only Rock World and a few other places doing rock music. You would walk in that place surrounded by all that weird imagery. We were playing lounge core music, 70s music, retro stuff. People would walk in and they would run out <laughs> in fear. It looked, it looked, they were horrified. And it took months and months and months until it took off. And about two months after it opened on my birthday, August 15th, my wife, my future wife, uh, my, my Russian mate left came in with her he was studying law and she was on a chemistry course and we met that night and we've been together for 25 years it's wonderful mike it's karma she she saved that place and so many times when i needed backup and it was financially in difficulty or they said problem and we didn't have the backing of the big boys or the big banks and and she was my uh sidekick that that fought every step of the way She's ma- I only met Charlie one time. We were at um, Hole in the Wall, weren't we? Or yes. Band in the Wall? Band in the Wall or Hole in the Wall? We, we, band on the Wall. Band, band on, on the, the wall. wall. I'm absolutely shocking for saying that. Band on the Wall, that's right. It was, it was the first time we met. It was fantastic meeting you and, uh, and Charlie. I, I did a postgraduate degree in TV and radio at Salford Uni. And I was, with, I was hanging out with a guy called Nick Gillespie. Nick is lovely. He's working in uh, television now as a cameraman. He's brilliant. He's a genius. And um, Nick says to me, uh, you're coming out tomorrow night, he says, uh, you know, Mike. And I says, where? And he says, uh, come down to the Fab Cafe with me. And I says, yeah, where's, what's this all about? Now, Nick is really into um, Marvel and DC and loves these comics. So he'd be a big fan of Starburst magazine, which we have to talk about for a few minutes in a moment, because that's another remarkable success story. But he says, a weird story, that one, yeah. (laughs) But before we talk about that, he says to me, come on, then we'll go and see. I said, why? He says that because Boba Fett is in there. I said, said, who? He says, the bloke who plays Boba Fett in the Star Wars movies is in there. I want to go in and go to the event. Brilliant it was. What a night that was. Fantastic, Mm. Mike. Uh, That 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 was the kind of night that did us proud. It put us on the map because they would come to do that for us. And because they get to sit with an audience of people who appreciated what they've done. And there's nothing like it. I mean, you, you say on Fab Cafe, and you're right to say this, it is the world's first ever TV and movie theme bar. There it is, is yeah. nothing like it, is there? Let me, just no. re- let me just remind our listeners, we've got Mike Rice on the line. Mike has had a story, really, that if it wasn't true, you'd have to invent it. You know, the, Mike's own story, mm. having worked in the law, putting together the bars, the magazine, the IRA bomb and all of this, meeting Charlie on his birthday... Wonderful stuff. Tell us about Starburst magazine. I'm lucky enough to get a complimentary copy of the magazine. Maybe I'm a bit cheeky wow. in that, but I do. I do. It's fantastic, Mike. How long have you had well, the it magazine? Was my, it was my childhood magazine. It started in 1977, and I was reading it as a toddler. And I used to like the guy who was editor of it now, then Deskin, was like the, the British um, Stan Lee. He was running Marvel UK. And uh, I used to read it. And then when we started with Starburst, I started to advertise in it. And then while we were advertising, the people that were running it came to me and said, oh, is there any chance that you could write uh, a piece on this um, 
uh, on a movie or something. So I started to write little bits for them. And then uh, one day we heard they were in financial difficulty and they were going to be uh, having to go out of business. So I got in touch and I, I basically paid all the debts of the company and took it over. And then suddenly, without any experience or knowledge whatsoever, I took over as editor-in-chief in 2011 and uh, kept it going ever since with one of my best friends, Chris Hayes. And uh, recently, I've had to give up being editor of it because I'd done 11 years and he's took over. And I think it's in safe hands. It's, it's uh, one of the last print publications dealing with movies that you can get. It's even survived uh, lockdown. It survived lockdown, right? And I want to talk about lockdown in a moment and your sure. your recollection of it, because obviously it's in the news now with the COVID inquiry. But on, on taking over Starburst, you're obviously a very savvy businessman. You're honest enough mm. to say that you're lucky to have Charlie, that she's pretty smart mm. too, and her oh, input yeah. is very important. But in 2011, surely some people said to you, Mike, this is the era of the internet, pal. Taking over a yeah. print magazine, are you out of your mind? Yeah, they did. And I said, you're wrong, because somebody will always want a print publication. What will happen is it will die down to the lowest level it's going to get. People who want digital will go there, but some people will always want it. And this uh, print will be, the, will be like vinyl. There will be a demand for it, and it will almost be like a collector's item. And I was dead right. That's exactly what's happened. It's lovely to see the magazine on shops. I look for it when I'm out and about, you know. And I have to say now, when I'm in news agents and that, I see it more times than I don't see it. And every time I do, mm. I get a little burst of joy. I really do, Mike. You know, because I'm well, not... It's an independent. It's, it's not yeah. part of all the other magazines on there are all owned by uh, Future Publishing or um, Bauer Media that do um, Empire. This is ours. And most importantly, it's printed and made in Manchester. And you have Manchester writers working with you. Uh, Correct. It's, it's, I can't, again, I'm not just Mike hasn't asked me to do this, neither has Paul. I could have done this years ago. Fab Radio has been carrying the Richie Allen Show since 2014. But with the 25th um, uh, anniversary, I, I, I just wanted to speak to Mike. Check them out. I'm lucky to get the magazine. It's brilliant. My favourite thing this year has been the 40th anniversary um, of Return of the Jedi. That is an absolutely brilliant magazine. It's a great issue. I love that issue. It's absolutely brilliant. It's one of my favourite childhood memories is going to the cinema to watch a Return of the Jedi. So Mike Rice is our guest. Please, if you get a chance over the weekend, if you are listening in Manchester or Salford, pop into Fab Cafe, buy a beer, um, enjoy the ambiance there, some of the memorabilia. It's just absolutely wonderful. I mean, it really is. I mean, there's nothing like it anywhere in the UK or elsewhere. And it's, it's, it's part of almost like Manchester folklore now. Fabcafe.co.uk Look, you know, because you're not stupid, you know what goes on on your radio station. You know yeah. that, I, that I gave a lot of uh, time to doctors and scientists who are very much against lockdowns. I also gave time to academics who said that lockdowns would destroy people's businesses, that it would harm people's psychological well-being, it would damage children. Yeah. Now, as a businessman, when you reflect mm. on the three years that we've just had, particularly 2020 and 2021, how did you cope with all of that? How did you get through it? 
Well, we didn't have any help off the government, that's for certain. We had bits and bobs, um, very tiny amounts. But Satan's Hollow, which is uh, like after, just to fill the sort of story in here, after Fab had broken through and done really well, it paid for a sister venue, Satan's Hollow, which is across the road. So um, it, it, it was... Um, very difficult with that place because that's a nightclub that was literally closed for two years and that was the breadwinner of the company and we couldn't get money for it because it was over the rateable value the the attitude being well it's too big to get help you should you should have some money in the bank so that was it so um i dealt the stock market during the day I tried to look after the money and I did my best to keep everybody paid and employed during lockdown so everyone was ready to resume afterwards. Now, I don't want to get too much into the debate on um, the rights and wrongs of lockdown. I am very grateful for the scientists with the, um, with the vaccine. I, I think that it was done in record time. I'm not intelligent enough to know whether that's a good or bad thing, but I'm very glad that things started to get normal soon. But we were, it was the biggest challenge that we had during the 25 years because it, it is incredible that we managed to reopen. We kept in touch with everybody in Manchester and we kept uh, on Saturdays, there would be DJs from Fab and Satan's Hollow doing live set lists for people so they could put the laptop in the living room and pretend they were at Fab or Satan's Hollow during Saturday night. When we reopened, there was a queue around the block for both places, and I couldn't be grateful. I couldn't be more grateful for that. Do you not? I, I mean, are you hearing, because we're hearing a lot here, that um, there are there is there is a lot of evidence, more than anecdotal, that you mentioned the jabs were rushed out, that they are causing harm, not obviously mm. to everybody, but that there would be, there appears to be more injuries and harms than you would expect from a vaccine rollout. And this is a big discussion point. You're on social media, so you know this. What, mm. Again, I, I didn't bring you on here to be political or to talk about this stuff. But I what, am very political, though. I mean, yeah. I'm, uh, I am left-wing, a massive... Um, uh, left winger and I'm, I'm often making points and uh, getting in a lot of trouble I do the, the also the show with Paul Rip, the Mancunian candidates yeah. where I'm very uh, pro um, pro life and uh, against guns and that gets me loads of death threats so yeah you know I'm but this is a weird one because I have a uh, I have people in my family who are very anti-vax and I have people who are very pro-vax. And I try, I'm sort of on the fence. I am vaccinated myself. And I've been okay. But I get, I get it. I understand. I read it all. And it, it is all worrying. Thank God for, um, for, for, for that, first of all. Yeah, like I said, I don't think everybody who will have had a job will be injured. As for the family, just to finish on this point before we, we kind of move on to, 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 to something else, but the family that disagree and agree, did they manage to put that aside and still remain in contact? Because I hear about so many people who um, fall out with people and um, over this particular issue and other issues, did they manage to kind of, you know, put it aside and, 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 and stay close? 
Well, um, how it's happened with me is they've just lied to me and said they've had it when they actually haven't. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you're you you you're a class. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't have been bothered anyway. No, and you're a classic um, lefty, aren't you? Like I yeah. um, have been. You wouldn't have said Sorry. like when when they were saying that people should have it to keep jobs and oh. that sort of stuff. You wouldn't have agreed with any of that. No. To your absolute no. credit, yeah, it should be t- down to the individual to make their own decision, and people shouldn't it be prevented. It absolutely is. Yeah. It's, it's the biggest independent. I mean, my God, I I can't impose my views on anybody because I thought it was safe and I took it. That doesn't mean that I can tell everybody else that that's the right decision for them. They they I know people who know more not they've got more knowledge than me about this, and yeah. they've decided not to. I'm not going to say they're wrong. No, it's brilliant. It's how the world should be. I made a decision. Mm. It's my decision. And I don't want you to be, you know, excluded just because you didn't have the job. Mm. That's what I love about you, Mike. Um, and I really do. Mike Rice is on well, the like, line. It caused problems, though. I mean, like we we were told that incoming there would be, we'd only been reopened a matter of months. And we were told that there was going to be a requirement for vaccination to enter a public place. And then that requirement was withdrawn. But when we actually announced for Satan's Hollow that people would uh, be turned away if they weren't vaccinated, I had a backlash like you wouldn't believe to deal with on social media, I, even though we were just repeating the government's mantra. And as a business, you're like, we've got to get open and we've got to get money in the Correct. door and we've got to start turning over. I totally get yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, you imagine you, you've seen the company and you know that I had to close down the company and pay, still pay people to stay at home for two years. And there are lots of multinationals. And I'll say, Weatherspoons fucked everybody over. Sorry, I don't know. If no, no, you can. You can of course. Well, it's going out on your radio station, so you can say what you want. But listen, I, I can say this because I know you now. But if I didn't know you, and I'm going to be honest, because I am honest. I like to be honest. If I didn't know you, and I heard that you said you were turning away the unjab from Satan's Hollow, I'd be saying, what a prick that man is. But yeah. I wouldn't know the nuance, you see. And people mm. don't know the nuances and the complexities. They don't know this stuff. They don't know that you've been, you know, paying money out of a bank account that's getting smaller and smaller for two years to staff to keep them on side while they're at home not doing anything, while the government is giving you sod all. And you've got to keep well, that business first, afloat, you know. I get the that. The first lockdown was a joke. I mean, I'll say if you want to really get into politics, Boris Johnson, he was an absolute bellend. I mean, the, what he did, how he dealt with this, he gets too much praise for how he dealt with the lockdown. I mean, he decided to lock down the entire country. Now, if he's ever spoken to one guy in a pub ever, one guy in licensed industry ever, and they, the have said to, uh, if he'd ever, ever had a proper conversation with them, they would have said to him, yeah, we order all our beer on the Monday. And then we sell it all through the week and then we reorder for the following week. Yeah, he closed the industry down on a Friday. That's why you've got so many closed pubs in uh, local vicinities, because basically they ended up with the week's supply where they sell 80% of it on Friday and Saturday. And we, he closed everybody down on Friday, even though he knew Monday that that was likely to be the case. He could have closed everybody Monday. They wouldn't have ordered that stuff. 
those debts are what drove a lot of people under. And, and he was responsible and he should have known better than that. You're, you're in the city centre a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm not as much these days, maybe once in a while. So you say lots have closed down, Mike. Like I will read in the broadsheets mm-hmm. every now and then. They'll say like 2,000 have closed this year. Can oh, you yeah. can you see that in Manchester? Can you see those I empty... I can see it and right. I can see it because I live in Stockport, remember, as yeah. well. So I travel out. I don't live here. I work here and then travel home and I go through lots of areas where there's just pubs boarded up left, right and centre. It's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that was it. The beginning of it was the smoking ban, which I'm a non-smoker and I was in agreement with, but at the end of the day... It, it still caused a massive problem. And uh, and then you've got this, the, yeah, getting through COVID, it ruined a lot of people. It really did. It ruined businesses. It's, there's so many places and, and especially independent companies that will never come back from that. Do you think there's any hope? I mean, Johns Hopkins Medical School, which is world renowned and it's kind of the leader, like when it puts out a study, it basically said, and you'll know this because it made the press, Johns Hopkins University said that lockdown didn't really save anybody and it did far more damage to people's health than good. Would you be hoping, because you don't sound like a vengeful guy at all, you've always sounded to me like you know, a very positive, optimistic, happy-go-lucky guy, but like, um, if it's true, because one of, what's her name? Hang on a second, Mike. Let me just grab this before we talk mm. more about Fab Cafe. Lucy Johnson, who's the health writer for Sunday Express, she seems to think that the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, and Sage, mm. Sage didn't ask for lockdowns. It was the government mm. that wanted lockdowns, Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock. And they basically told mm. uh, Sage and Chris Whitty to make the case for lockdowns. And I find that extraordinary if it is true. But if it's true that lockdowns didn't save anybody and that it was an arbitrary measure, I mean, I would be properly pissed off if I was a business owner like you, thinking, what did you, you know put what? us through all that for? I, yeah. I just don't know enough. You don't know enough. I, I am not medically trained. And they say, did. The same way when I was a barrister, you'd get people going on at me like, oh, you, you know, usually people who were uh, facing life imprisonment for telling lies and blaming me for actually running a competent uh, defence, yeah. but not including stuff that they, that they hadn't admitted they'd made up. They, um, I don't want to say stuff when no, I hear I'm you. not, I'm not, but, but it, all I can say is it was devastating, the effects of it. It was devastating. And people who now have managed to get over it, uh, that's, that's all fine. But you are now seeing the lock-on events because you, you the, uh, sorry, lock-on, knock-on events. I was merging lockdown and uh, yeah, yeah, knock-on yeah. there. The, um, you walk through Manchester and you see swathes of properties to let. And that wasn't how it was when everybody reopened. People reopened carrying debt and they were hoping that it had all snapped back to normal and it didn't. It took months and months and months. And that's why I'm so grateful to have Satan Solo, Fab Cafe, that magazine, the the radio station, everything I had snapped back, but it wasn't the same for everybody else. And I think lockdown has changed the commercial landscape. No doubt it's changed the commercial landscape. Let's talk about Fab Cafe. 25 years and thank God Starburst magazine Fab Cafe Satan's Hollow and and, um, the the station of course 
are still there and I mean that mate I really do yeah. mean it's great to have you on the programme so 25 years what's happening this weekend you've got events Thursday Friday Saturday and Sunday what's, what's going on and we are literally just inviting everybody who's ever been there who misses the place or hasn't been down for a while or has been down and wants to just come and hang out with us just to come down and it's that simple more than anything else more than special events Thursday is the big one it uh, celebrates the day it opened and we, I'm going to give a, a very, very, very short little speech. And a few people are going to be there to help entertain people. And that's it. But it's always been very low-key. It's always been like that. It's never been fashionable, that place. You know, it's, um, it's like crashing a, a year, the best party you've ever been to at Malt's house. <laughs> it's, the, it's the appeal of it, though. That's the appeal yeah. of it, the fact that you say it hasn't ever... Uh, being being fashionable and if you like looking back on the 25 years I mean you've had so many stars of film science fiction films mm. and science fiction TV you've had your man your man Jerry Anderson has been in there Thunderbirds and, yeah, that um, was like the Pope christening a Roman Catholic church tell, was, it, was it mobbed when he turned up was it mobbed when he turned up it must have been absolutely mobbed right they must have come it was every- yeah I mean how it turned out was there was a rap party for something that he was doing for Cosgrove Hall and if any Mancunians don't remember that shame on you that was the the animation company that made Danger Mouse and Charlton and the Wheelies and he just turned up with them who they'd done a rap party for um uh, a show they'd done and he turned up and I got chatting to him and I went oh do you fancy uh, coming here one night and doing a talk and it was hammered that was one of the key moments that I say is responsible for that place taking off Yeah, I, mean, I really do think so what an absolute icon eh now mm. look the obvious the obvious mainstream none of us are mainstream but the obvious if you were being interviewed by Lorraine Kelly now for example right mm. Lorraine Kelly yeah. would say what what for the next 25 years because you've kind of outlined the challenges but it sounds like yeah. you've got enough energy that if we stuck a plug yeah. in your backside you could probably power the whole of Manchester right so if you look at the yeah, next so. if you look at the next 25 years obviously the challenges are going to be that changes are happening amongst younger people and their relationship with alcohol and going out. So what are you, are you looking ahead thinking we're going to have to adapt what we do and how we do it to be relevant in the future? No, we're never going to change. We're not going to change a goddamn thing. We're going to carry on doing what we do until the place closes. And, and that's it. And it's that integrity that's going to get us through because we, we're just going to be retro rolling. We're, it, like you'll go in and instead of a picture of someone from Thunderbirds, it'll be a picture from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Instead of um, David Bowie, it might be um, you just, know, another artist from the 80s, <laughs> 90s. Instead, it'll, it'll just slowly update, but it will be a release from the mainstream every time you walk in. Starburst magazine is online too, starburstmagazine.com. Um, if, like me, you're a fan of science fiction, if you're a fan of horror, which is my favourite genre, you got to read Starburst magazine. That's starburstmagazine.com and fabcafe.co.uk. 25 years in business. I'll give you the final word, Mike. What I wanted to say was back in... 2013, sorry, 2014, I had an offer from a radio station to do a breakfast show. It was lucrative. Mm. It was lovely. And yeah. I was I was told by my missus and I was told by Paul Ripley, 
uh, in particular, mm. not to do that, to go your own way and do your own radio oh, show yeah. out of your own studio and we look after it. And you obviously had to okay that, knowing that, you know, the programme would be controversial from time to time. And not, not, very, mm-hmm. many people, not very many people know this, but let me tell this little story. Um, I'm not going to say who they were, but um, yeah. some, some silly people knocked on the door some years ago of, um, of Fab Radio. And uh, Mike happened to be there. I think you were there, Mike. Some silly people yeah. knocked on the door, some nasty people, and demanded that Mike Rice get rid of that horrible, hateful Richie Allen show off of Fab Radio. And legend uh, has it that you basically told them that they had a few seconds to get out the door and down the road before you reached yeah. for... I love that, Mike. Yeah. I love that. No, I, they, they, they can have whatever opinion they want. And they can express it however they want. But if they're going to come and try to put pressure on us to change, it's never going to work. And that is the ethos of this. It's the ethos of what I'm going to say on Thursday night. The the reason we've defeated the odds over the years is because we've never given in to that. We've never given in. You know, I think at the beginning, I went for loans for Fab when the place was blown up and the Royal Bank of Scotland, and, uh, and I'm naming them, they uh, they refused us and they were our bankers. They were happy to take the money if we succeeded. But when they got a uh, loan application and then the, the breakdown of what it was going to be spent on included rubber monsters and robots, they freaked out. And that, that was it. And that's what you're dealing with with these people. And uh, you've got to have people on board. And if you express an opinion like yours, there's going to be people that they don't want to debate you. That's the thing. Those people who turned up here didn't want a conversation because they knew they'd probably lose that conversation. They just wanted to silence you. Yeah, and not even me because it's... it's, it's them. Mike, that's amazing. I, I, I just want to, I want to, I want to double down them. what Mike said there. Um, three years ago, there was a Twitter storm and it was around a guest that was on this programme. And it got nasty. And three guys representing a, a, a certain pressure group called into to Fab Radio and demanded that Mike get rid of the Richie Allen show off the schedule or, you know, Mike would be cancelled and things bad things would happen mm. to the magazine. And Mike told them, oh, if you don't okay. get the fuck out of here at the speed of light, um, mm. you know, I, I'll never forget that as long as I live. Well, that's how I feel about it. And, it, and I think there's more people like me than you think. They, 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 we've got to have freedom of speech. And I'm not talking about freedom to hate speech. I mean, they, uh, I'll, just, I'll be honest, I, this might get us in a bit of trouble, but I, uh, I, I was not a follower of um, Jeremy Corbyn, even though I'm a massive uh, Labour supporter. And I support them every year financially, physically, everything I can do. I am not, uh, I do attack the Israeli government because I find them right wing to the extreme. And I find uh, some of what they do to be morally reprehensible. And then that's weaponized into, oh, you're anti-Semitic. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I just don't like that government. It's the same as, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't support Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, but that doesn't mean that I'm anti-UK. It doesn't mean that I'm anti-British. In fact, I'm very pro-British. I want, I want this country to succeed. And uh, what is never, ever 
put on air is the amount of people that 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 demonstrate in opposition to this right wing government that's in the uh, that's you know in in Israel and and it's a very complicated subject matter so you get involved in all this and then there's going to be people who can't debate you yeah they want you to just be quiet yeah call him an anti-semite and get rid of him and you know this because you will have attended rallies for palestine over the years or you would have passed by them the amount of jewish yes. people who attend those protesting against the state of israel absolutely and it's never absolutely. in the news is it it's they never don't in the want, news they don't want palestinians to be subjected to such inhuman behavior there you go. And and that's the thing. And um, But equally, you know, I unfortunately met Jeremy Corbyn. He was uh, somebody that I knew personally and fell out with. So it's a bit, he's complicated my story. Yeah, he's a social democrat anyway. He's not a socialist. There's a massive difference. You and I both know that. No, no. We're, we're just about out of time. Mike, Mike I, you, you will have the last word, right? Sorry, you were going to say something there. Go ahead before I cut Oh, you. no, 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 I wasn't. I'm fine. Go on. I, I will definitely be in at some stage um, over the weekend. Um, I hope I'll catch you. I know you'll be busy um, to have a point and uh, to, to say hello. Fab Cafe is brilliant. Continued success to, to it, to you, to Charlie, to all your staff, Starburst Magazine, Satan's Hollow and Fab Radio. Do check out Paul and Mike doing the Mancunian candidates on fabradiointernational.com. It's a breath of fresh air. It's a great, great chat show. Mike, it's been an honour, pal. This is something we should have done years ago. But thank Absolutely. God we did it today. I'm here any time you want me on. Any time. Best of luck at the weekend and congratulations on 25 years of fab. Take care, my friend. And it's been a privilege having you on as part of Fab Radio. Uh, fab Radio 2 and the show has been great. I'm really really happy that you're out there doing what you do it's been an honor mate thank you mike best to charlie and speak real soon bye for now speak to you bye. thanks mike speak, speak to you bye. bye 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 thanks mike yeah what happened was um i i i got into a, a thing with um northwest zionists here in 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 manchester or in manchester and it went on for three or four days it got very nasty um threats were made against my better half my address and phone numbers were posted online it was really really nasty and three blokes went into fab radio and demanded zionist guys are claiming to be zionists anyway and said if you don't get rid of the richie allen show it'll be very bad for you we'll destroy your business and mike said to them and this is no absolutely no exaggeration here is that if they didn't get away from his business and from him that it would be the worst day of their lives and i'll never forget that You'll, you don't, none of us really, unless we meet one another and we spend time with one another, it's hard to know each other. You and I speak through the medium of radio. But my closest friends, and there aren't many of them, will tell you I'm the most loyal guy in the world. Hayden Hewitt will tell you that. Paul will tell you that. You know, you stand up for me like that. I could never fall out with you, no matter what um, happens in the future. That was uh, Mike Rice, the man behind Fab cafe which wasn't even opened in 1996 when the IRA bomb in Manchester went off uh, how it didn't kill anybody is remarkable if you go online and look for photographs of it to see the devastation that it brought to the city they resurrected the idea and a couple of years later they opened in Portland Street it's been going strong ever since it's a wonderful place very unique and uh, I'm very proud of them 
And I'm very proud that when this programme began in September 2014, when nobody else, I mean, David was brilliant. And David Icke said, Richie, I'll stream it for you on the homepage and we'll never forget that. And we always give him credit for that. It was wonderful. But nobody else, like nobody outside of the independent or alternative news arena anyway, you know, would have had anything to do with it. And Paul Ripley, my one of my greatest ever pals, and Mike, they said, yeah, we'll put it on. And I said, you know, it's going to be controversial. There will be times when, you know, you might regret putting it on because we'll have everybody and anybody on. And the guy said, um, well, that's fine, you know. There's no wrong with that, like, controversy. Just uh, just go and do it. So that's lovely. That's um, kind of more or less it for me uh, for Tuesday's programme. Is it? Have I got another couple of minutes to chat with you? Uh, Dr. Rima Labo will be on the programme with me tomorrow, Wednesday. And there's more I should tell you. But I've not got the diary. I've just got my notebook. I never have the diary. Where's the diary? I don't know where the diary is. Um, thank you for your messages. John says, what a lovely change of pace the interview with Mike Royce is. Up with this sort of thing, says John. And Chris says, interesting. Who knows what to say, says Chris. Exactly. And we don't judge people for the things they do or say or because they see things a bit differently. You know, Chris was on to say, you know, this lovely man, Mike, he thinks the jabs were a success. Well, no, he's on the fence, Mike. He had the jab and he believed, you know, that the jabs were warranted at the time because he believed that lots of our closest friends and family members believed it. Um, he had quite a bit of disagreement in his own family and um, he was very honest, very candid about it. And that's what I love. That is it for the programme. I'm getting out now. Um, just to tell you, five o'clock UK time tomorrow. The programme has been streaming on rumble.com. The address is rumble.com forward slash The Richie Allen Show, all one word. Right, it's very basic. I, I'm not going to do anything with the channel. It's a one-shot setup, one-camera setup, and uh, it's there if you want it, okay? I think it might fizzle out over time, but it's there, and it's up and running now, and I promised I would do it, and I have done it. <laughs> Despite people saying, Ah, Richie, you took a long time to get it up and running but we got it up and running in the end Paul and myself mostly Paul 5 o'clock tomorrow I'll see you there closing out with the Righteous Brothers until tomorrow it's bye from me you never close your eyes anymore